Good morning, church. Open your copy of God's Word to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. This is going to kick off a series going through Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. If you search for Made for More, we covered Ephesians 1 through 3. Because God rescued you, that He chose you, that you were elected, that you were adopted in the family, that you were made righteous, that you are holy because of Him alone, that He has redeemed you, He has purchased you. And going through Ephesians 1-3, through you recognize this first portion of Ephesians is heavy doctrine and theology. It clarifies some things that we need to know before before we get to chapters 4, 5, and 6. You need to be grounded in 1, 2, and 3. As we're looking at calling, discovering God's vision for your life, Ephesians 4-6, through here is a juxtaposition, a side-by-side of the book of Ephesians. It's divided into two. So we have indicatives and imperatives. I know you didn't come Sunday morning to go back to like English grammar class, okay? There are things called indicatives. Indicatives are found in Ephesians 1 through 3. This is what is true. These are absolute truths. This is, if you're in Christ, if you're brand new in Jesus, this is who you now are. You need to know your identity before you can figure out your activity. And so Ephesians 1 through 3, indicatives. What's an imperative? Now that you know who you are and what's been done to you, there are things you need to do. So it's not just that you have a new identity, it's that you have now new activity. But you got to get the order right. Has anybody ever just started building a house and they thought a uh, big pile of sand is a great place to start? How'd that go? Not, not, not super great, right? You need the foundation, you need the pillars, you need the supports, you need something underneath in order to build on, and that's one through three. If we can go through the slides and get those answers for our friends here so that they're not panicking about blanks that are not filled in, all right? So we're going to go through. There we go. Identity, activity, identity, activity. Not only that, but the indicatives tell us our position. You used to have a certain position that you were apart from Christ, separated from Christ, that that you were ungodly. There was no God. No God in your life. No concern about that. Your position changed because you were placed in Christ. If you're in Christ, your practice is very different. You don't live the way that you used to. Things that were familiar, that were the norm, are now foreign to you because you have turned away heading in a different direction. But you can't practice unless you know your position. If you don't know who you are, you're not going to live out your roles and responsibilities if nobody has told you who you are. Here's the bottom line. I have to ask the question, God, who am I? And Ephesians 1-3 through gives the answer. But even once I know who I am, but now what? Now what do I do? Why is this so important? Why is it important to get the indicatives right before you go to the imperatives? Why is this a big deal? Could I throw a few, a few thoughts out as we get started? Here's the warning. Here's the warning. Indicatives before imperatives because religion ignores God's indicatives and runs to the imperatives. Are you tracking? I know we're using some big words. Can we, can we just lower the cookie jar to the bottom shelf, please? Just give us some access. Here it is. If you don't know who God is and you don't know who you are if you are His, Your temptation is to bypass the essential foundation for your life and just ask the question, what should I do? 
Tell me what to do. Have you ever been in a place where you're like, don't confuse me with all of it. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Does that work sometimes? Yes. Sometimes in certain situations, you're like, I don't need to know all of the backstory. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do right now. That doesn't work in the Christian life. For many of us, if you've been around church, the temptation is to get religion and bypass God. The temptation is just to ask the question, I want my life to be better. Just tell me what to do. I, I want to fix my problems. Just like, okay, what does God have to say about it? Just, just tell me, give me a list. Give me a list. I want somebody to just tell me, take two of these and call me in the morning. Okay, good. But instead, God in his wisdom, and this is normal for Paul, Paul writing this letter is like, we're going to spend half of our time together walking through solid, rock-solid foundational truths. So go back in your own time, be able to read through Ephesians 1-3, through made for more series on our podcast, subscribe to our podcast or our website, and work your way through that if you missed any of that, because that's the foundation for what we're talking about moving forward. And here's a big word for us. Conviction. Conviction. Indicatives turn imperatives into convictions. What in the world does that mean? It means if you know who you are and who God is, when someone tells you this is what Christians do, you have a foundation to draw from that leads to strong convictions that do not waver when you're tested. Does that make sense? If we are religious and we don't have a relationship with God, when the peer pressure comes and the testing and the trials and all the allurement of the world, guess what happens? You have zero conviction. You just have, well, my mom used to say, well, growing up, we didn't do that. How long is that going to last when you are under pressure? When you're in the storm? When everybody is saying, come, come this way. No, that is ancient. That's old. That's crusty. That's lame. You have no conviction because you don't have a solid foundation of indicatives that put your foundation deep. I've just been around church, just going to church. When you're tested, you're going to fail because you don't have conviction. Have you ever met anybody that even under great pressure, great allurement from friends, family, from the world, from coworkers, they're like, no, not doing it. I'm not going there. What, are you religious or something? No, I have deep roots of conviction because I have not just been taught that or been around it. I believe it. And I'm not budging. And I'm standing firm. Anybody want that? Anybody want to be that person? Do you want to be the friend? Do you want to be the family member that they look to and go, there is no getting that person off course. She will not budge. She's all in, fully committed. She's not straddling any fence. He is serious about this. It's not because of his background or his upbringing. It's not because somebody gave him a book to read. He really, really believes this. Conviction. Conviction. May this series bring conviction of the Spirit of where we have strayed, but greater that we would have deep roots that we would not bend. We would not break under the pressure because we know what we believe and we know who we are and we know we have a, here it is, we have a calling. There's a calling on our lives. If you're a follower of Jesus, conviction clarifies the calling. So can we go there? Over the next weeks, we're going to deep dive into this study of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Calling. Calling. So here we go. Calling. We're, we're discovering God's vision for your life. 
It starts with one big idea. Verse 1, uh, we know it's part of Paul's epistles. He wrote 13, I didn't swear, epistle means letter. And so Paul wrote 13 letters and he wrote one letter to the church in Ephesus. And in the book of Ephesians here, this letter is written so that first they would know who they are and who God is. And now he transitions to chapter 4 and he's about to embark on how are we to practically live this? Anybody get fired up about practicality, application? I want to know what to do with all this information. Tell me what to do. Okay, I know some things that I didn't know before about God. What am I to do with it? Does it make any difference? Does the Bible make a lick of difference in my workplace, at my home, with my neighbors? Does it make any difference? And God would say verse after verse, especially in Ephesians 4-6, through yes, 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 yes. And here's where he starts. He starts with unity. Walking in unity requires personal convictions. If you're going to experience unity, and we're not talking about just unity with everybody, just be peaceable, agree with everybody, just be accepting. We're talking about as God's people, if you are part of the family, if you're part of the family, the pursuit must be to be united together with God's people. This is not a Lone Ranger solo project. You get that, right? Jesus didn't just save you so that you could just on your own wander around and just do the Jesus and me thing. I wish somebody would have told me early on. I wish someone would have told me. John, now that you're a Christian, you got to understand that you were born twice. And you weren't just born in private twice. You were born into a family twice. The first time you were physically born into a family, and we could share a lot of stories about maybe the family we didn't want or didn't expect and our upbringings vary quite a bit but we were born into a family. I wish somebody would have said, John, do you realize that what happened to you when you were born again is that you were born into a spiritual family? You were born into, and I think it's safe for us to say, you were born into the church. You now belong to the church. You are now part of a church family. And throughout your life as a Christian, the norm, the expectation is that you would experience unity within a local church family. That's always that's always been God's vision is a people together. How well are we doing at that? We, we know what God desires. We know that this is His best. And I wonder if we've walked in thinking, well, I know better. Or based on my past experience, we're going to agree to disagree on that. And I would just say today, what if, what if you took a step back and asked the question, regardless of past hurts, am I going to move forward in unity with God's people on purpose. I'm not going to wait for people to come to me. I'm going in. I'm not going to be passive. I'm going to be active because it takes personal conviction. I'm part of the body. I'm an essential part. I am needed regardless of people's attitudes. This is where I belong. I belong here. I don't need to look anywhere else. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Conviction. So let's start here. Verses 1-3. through three. And I was so excited about the series that I thought we were going to get through six verses. And I'm like, I can only cover one point today. And some of us are a little too excited about that. Praise the Lord. One point message. Could, could I have an encore of that? Right? Could, could we get some more? We're going to cover three verses, okay? You think I can handle it? Oh, pray for me. Here we go. Here we go. Verse one. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. There's a calling... There's a calling on the Christian's life. And Paul says, 
I'm a slave. I'm a prisoner. I am chained to Jesus. And like, there is no plan B. This is plan A. I am all in. We are together in this. And he's imaging that he is suffering on behalf, that the Christian life means persecution. It means discomfort. And he calls the church to this. The very first point of practice, he says, you've got to live in such a way that's worthy of this high calling in which you've been called. Could, could I just pause for a second? God is not saying you need to earn it. You need to try to live up to to arrive somewhere. The exact opposite is being stated. You're already right with God. He's already pleased with you. You're already adopted. Now live it. Live the fullness of the life that you already have. Be who you already are. Are you tracking with me? Be who you already are. Don't try to achieve, arrive. There is no graduation. It's like you were already accepted. You've already been invited and accepted. You are in. Now live it. I don't know about you, but it upsets me when people have tons of money and they absolutely just blow it. Like like millions of dollars, lottery winners. Do you know what the percentage is that they're bankrupt within a couple years? Like 98% of all lottery winners are bankrupt within three years. What are you doing with hundreds of millions of dollars? But do you know what the Christian's problem is? The opposite. You are filthy rich and you have never once gone to withdraw. Your bank account has zero, 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 zero. And you got a debit card and you're like, um, but I kind of like the things of the world and I kind of just want to be comfortable. Why don't you cash in? Why don't you withdraw? Why don't you go and tap into what's already yours? And many Christians are yawning at that invitation because the allure of the world, there's something better out there. And God's like, don't buy it. Don't buy it. You are filthy rich. Are you living rich? Heavenly speaking. Don't fall into prosperity gospel. Don't fall in. If you have enough faith and then you're going to be healthy and wealthy, we're talking about no matter what happens, no matter the circumstances, am I tapping into all that belongs to me because of who my papa is? I'm adopted. I'm part of the family. Obviously, we're pretty fired up about adoption. There's something so beautiful about knowing what would life have been and what is now being offered because you belong to the family. Everything that is the family's is now yours, right? You have full benefits and freedom to be able to live a life that is so different than what you would have lived. Are you living the life? Do you have full conviction that everything that you would invest your time and energy into in this world is a waste of time and it's cheap in comparison to the riches offered to you, the lifestyle that God is calling you to? It's better. It's better, but yet we don't live in unity. Instead, what do we do? Well, he gives the image of walk. What's up with walk? Walk is the most repetitive term in the New Testament for the Christian lifestyle. Why walk? Well, it's very visual, right? So we must ask, if you are a Christian, if you're a Christian, I don't assume everybody here is a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, the question is, are you walking forwards or are you backpedaling because we're walking it's just what are we making progress or not answer that for yourself the other question would be just because you start on the right path and i don't know who this is relevant for but for some of us we started well we started well and then we just took a turn somewhere and we just 
how did we end up in this dead end? We were doing well for a while. Walk. Do you get it? Do you get it? A lifestyle of movement. It's one foot and then another. It's intentionality about direction. It's not necessarily about pace and speed. It doesn't matter right now if you feel like you're, you're just snail's pace. The question is, what direction are your toes pointed? What is your trajectory? It's not about speed. It's about direction of the walk. Do you believe that if you start walking and you are one degree off, you are going to end up a thousand miles later in a very different place than where you started? What your goal was. It doesn't take much, but Paul loves this image. All right, He loves walk. And he says this, walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called. Apart from the Holy Spirit's leadership, you are going to go back to what's familiar. You're going to go back to the old. That's our default. Apart from putting ourselves under the authority of the Holy Spirit's leadership, our toes are going to realign back to where we used to be. That's where we go. Is that relevant for you? Do you feel it? Do you feel it? you feel it in your own heart? Like, I just want to do what I've always done. I'm familiar with that. Don't tell me to change. Don't tell me something different. Don't tell me I'm wrong and that there's a right way. I just want to do what I've always done, even if it leads to misery. At least it's safe, familiar misery. And he says, walk in a certain way, worthy, worthy of the gospel. And he says, if we are, if we are headed in the same direction, guess what happens? Unity occurs. That if we are all pointing our toes towards Jesus together, even if we're at different paces, we're heading in the same direction together. You know, I, I think about the world and I, I think about how they long for peace, right? I think, is it true that every generation has some kind of mantra of world peace and every culture is, how do we just arrive at a place of peace? Everybody is convinced that different sources or directions or leadership are going to give us peace and unity. Can't we all just get along? Can't we just all set aside these things and be together? Well, I was thinking about this, and every culture wants it, but worldly efforts won't get it. So what gets us there? What is real unity? Have you asked that? Like, if we're called to be united as Christians, what does that actually look like and how do we get there? Do we have any cooks in the house? Ingredients matter, right? Ingredients matter, okay? For some of us, we have archived in our Rolodex and we have three by five cards and here's the big five, okay? This is, this is what we have from Ephesians 4. Here are five ingredients. Are you ready? Some of the cooks, you're like, yeah, bring it, bring it on. What are the ingredients of unity? Number one, humility, humility. Verse two, with all humility, with all humility. So Christian, are you supposed to bring to the table a little bit, a little bit of humility? I'm just going to try harder. I'll just try to be a little bit more humble. Well, the call here is all fully complete humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. We'll get there. But with humility comes a painful process of being stripped away. And I don't know where you're at in your journey, but this is foundational. There's a reason it's first. There's a reason that humility goes first. You came to Christ as an arrogant, entitled, little something or other. Okay, I'll stop there. And guess what? One of the primary things that God is working on in you is to conform you to the image of His Son is this. Humility. I don't know what it's going to take. I don't know what you've gone through so far, but here's the guarantee. 
God is passionate about stripping away any sense of superiority in your life. This is the guarantee. Wherever you have built up in yourself that you're a little bit better than somebody else and that you kind of look down a little bit on others, it's no mistake that every single letter in the New Testament is constantly going back to what party you belong to and what tribe and what ethnic group and, and the divisions of how we're different and how we are better as a group or individuals. It's everywhere. Why? Because that is the recipe for flesh-hell-bound individuals. And if you've been redeemed, if you have been forgiven, one of the main ingredients is this. Superior, superiority has got to go. Any sense of arrogance, any trace, God is in pursuit of humbling His followers. And we often think, what did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this? Why am I going through such hard things? Why is it so difficult for me? Before Jesus, it was pretty easy. Why is it so hard? Part of the difficulty is that in humility, the dial has to be cranked up much hotter than what you're comfortable with because superiority does not go away quickly. Boiling the pride out of us. How is that going for you? If this is a main ingredient, this is the first ingredient, we better ask the question as a church. If this is what we do, this is the first series that, that I that I preached here when we came in 2021 was this is what we do. And we started off with this. We welcome without judgment. If we're going to be a church like that, this is it. God is saying, I'm going to work in a unique way with a group of people that welcome all with open arms. No judgment, no sense of superiority, no arrogance, no hard-hearted, stiff-armed welcoming. Just as Christ has welcomed you, we now welcome others. And over the course of our first year, do you know what common phrase was spoken in our church? Oh, I don't associate with those people. I, I won't go into the room with those people. Oh, I don't sit with those people. Oh, I would never go into those people's house. Excuse me? Those people. I didn't know there was those people. I thought there was all of us who are a total mess and then Jesus. We are those people. You are those people. We have something in common. We are more alike than we are different. We are more like Hitler than we are Jesus Christ. We are together in this. We are not better. We are not superior. There are no those people in God's house. I don't know where you're at with that, but that's an area that God's like, we're working right there. That's got to go. If there is even a sprinkle left, in that kind of an ingredient of arrogance, comparison, of racism, ageism, whatever it is, classism, socio-economical, whatever it is, God's like, I am purging that out of my house. It cannot stay. And then God can show up in power to be able to bring unity to a people that would never, ever step into the same room with each other and actually love each other. Unity, and it starts here. Humility. What, what's the second one? I hope you're like, are, are there more ingredients? Because uh, humble pie ain't my thing. Well, th there's more. Okay, we're, we're going to work on it, right? Ingredient number two is gentleness. Gentleness with hu all humility. And we could say with all humility and all gentleness. They're together in this. Um, gentleness. It, anybody struggle with this? Like, I wasn't raised that way. I'm not feeling that. That's not my personality type. My default is not gentle. Can I, can I speak to the men for a second? 
Has there ever in the history of mankind been a husband or a father that was accused of being too gentle? Has that ever happened? You get back to me, okay? Send me an email. You can give you, you can text me on that. The reality is we don't do gentle. We haven't seen it. It hasn't been modeled. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know what it's supposed to feel like because we believe growing up meekness is weakness. Any form of gentleness is wrong. It's effeminate. To be a man is to be aggressive, loud, in control, to be strong and to be bold. Anything, anything, anything. Are you tracking with me? Anything but gentle. Not that. Well, these ingredients are a recipe for Christ-like character. Virtues that look like Jesus. Gentle. Gentle. And with this, we have to acknowledge that we don't do gentle. And I wonder if, if we would ask your family members, those that are closest to you, hey, are they harsh? Are they insensitive? If we could just interview those that have known you for years. Um, is their default to be hard? To be uh, a little too much with their words, a little too much with their tone, a little too much with their volume? And unfortunately, uh, we would not want the reviews on that. Because if anybody's close enough and really, really honest, we're, we're not looking like Jesus in this particular area. But if we're going to be united, if we're going to treat each other in a way that leads to unity, we treat each other differently. All humility, all gentleness. And sometimes, as we pursue being more gentle, we realize how much further we actually have to go. Have you been there? I'm going to work on it. I need to be aware of it. And once you start working on it, you're like, I never even realized how bad it was until I was willing to receive some input, some feedback. Uh, we often say in church leadership, uh, feedback is the breakfast of champions. If you are going to grow up and you're going to mature, you need somebody to go, can I be honest about something? Why is there no gentleness in your interactions, in your relationships? You're baking an entirely different cake. It's a satanic cake. It's not a Jesus cake. This is God's house and God's people. They're changing. I don't know where God wants to put his, put his finger in your life, but maybe this would be one. God, are you with me? Are you with me? God, may 2024 be a year that regardless of how I started, I want to end being more gentle. God, change me. No more, this is just the way I am. It's just how I'm wired. If you knew my family, if you knew my extended family, if you knew for generations. And Jesus says, oh, I, I, can, I can destroy all of that and create something brand new. So what if in your heart, even right now, you say, by the end of this year, I want people to say, what happened to you? You used to be so, and now you're, you're softer. You're tender. You listen. You pay attention. You're slow to speak and quick to hear. You're slow to anger. What happened? You can say, I'm fighting for unity in the body of Christ. I'm fighting to be united with my brothers and sisters. And if this is a second ingredient, this has got to be one of my focuses. And as you're patient and you're enduring, no matter what's coming at you, no matter how you are hurting, no matter how you're offended or people are attacking, gentleness is a necessary ingredient that goes against everything that you have been taught and seen 
but it is necessary for unity. How bad do we want to be united? Number three, patience. Do you see it? With all humility, gentleness, and with patience. With patience. Anybody praying for more patience in 2024? You're like, no, I do not want to be destroyed with tests and trials because I know what it's going to take to make me more patient, so I'm not praying for that. I wonder if you would change your mind on that because your ministry, your ability to reach people is going to multiply so quickly if you grow in this area. If this ingredient is added, you become somebody that is irresistibly reflecting Jesus. The patience that we don't have, God gives it big time. Patience is your willingness to endure pain. Patience is your willingness to endure pain while waiting for God. So what, what am I waiting for God for? Why, why would I wait on Him? What is He going to do? Well, here's the primary. I'm waiting for God to change me. If we jump too quickly, anybody in the house a little tempted to go, I've been praying for God to change my circumstances, to change the difficulties, to take the hard stuff out. I've been praying for years and years and years and years that God would change him, that God would change her. Is God able to do all that? I mean, in a moment, circumstances could change. Do you believe it? Yes, of course. Do you believe that in a moment, God could change that person? Yes. Do you know that God loves you too much to spread the grace and the love on everybody else when He wants to pour it out on you. His priority is to change you. Your life changes if you make this one shift. This single shift in your life. I am no longer going to obsess over the need for other people to treat me differently and for them to change. I have a single focus this year and it's God change me. God change me. God, change me. Even if it doesn't get better, even if it gets harder. Here's the number one difficulty that we have when we are desperate, when we feel so hopeless is, God, I would feel so much better. I would be so much happier. I would have so much more peace if this would just be removed or if they were different. And what if so many of our prayers were not praying according to God's will? God's will is that we would be sanctified. We would be transformed. If we start praying, God, make me patient. And a large part of growing in patience is enduring pain that doesn't go away. Pain, and that could be relational pain, physical pain, that could be soul pain, that could be emotional loss and grief pain. The pain that you're experiencing, what if God is too kind to take it away? What if His love is way too much for that to just be snatched out of your life because God wants more than your comfort and your ease. God wants to make you holy more than He wants to make you happy. But we don't believe that. We believe that the best thing for us is for pain to go away and relationships to get better and conflict to be resolved and for other people to treat us differently and for us to have more money and better circumstances. And I'll just say this morning, we got to believe this. God loves you too much for that. Because the more that He has, the better that He has is actually producing patience and endurance in you. That's the best. Jesus' likeness formed in you. 
that's what's best for you. Do we believe that? Well, this ingredient tells us, this is a big one, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, how else are we going to walk worthy? How are we going to experience unity? Here it is. Number four, forbearance. This is a word that we do not use. All right. Why, why use uh, the King James? Okay. Why? Because there's not a single word that says bearing with one another. Okay. Bearing with one another. Forbearance is that concept. How long do I have to put up with it? How long are they going to treat me this way? How long am I going to have to go through this? Forbearance. Bearing with people. When I recognize, oh, if you get this, it might change things. Here, here, is my, here is my challenge to myself when I recognize that I am one of those people. I'm one of those people. It's not those people that are the problem. I'm the biggest problem in my life. The biggest problem is inside of me, not outside of me. If I, if I get that, and I have a God that lovingly endures with me, you believe that? How much is God putting up with you? Can we put it that way? Just real frankly. He puts up with a lot of your shenanigans. He puts up with a lot of stupid in your life. He puts up with a lot of rebellion and defiance. He puts up with a lot of you making the same mistakes over, 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 over. How much forbearance? How much is Jesus bearing with you? If we even got a glimpse of it, it would blow us away. But here's the shift in our minds. If God does that with me, I must grow up and mature. I must walk worthy of this calling to do this with everybody in my life. The way that He's treated me, I'm committed to treat others that way. Easier said than done? Wow. But if we get a glimpse of our own sinfulness, if we see, man, I am hard. I am rebellious. I am defiant. I am arrogant and self-righteous. I I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people. And God so loves me. He bears with me. God is so long-suffering with me and it's a small thing for me to bear under the weight of somebody else's sin and the trial and the tension. It's a small thing in light of what God's doing with me. So one of the things that we emphasized a few years back is that we will welcome without judgment as a church. We will welcome without judgment. We welcome without judgment. We've got to make that personal. I will welcome without judgment. Can we say that together? I will welcome without judgment. I'm resolved to do that. If each one of us does that, then we are a church that welcomes without judgment. But it's up to me because I'm not expecting that everybody else is going to do this. i, I got to participate. i got to be united in this. But here's the second one. I will forgive without limit. I will forgive. I will choose to forgive, and it's here. Patience, forbearance. No relationship is going to endure without this. Forgiveness. There are no enduring relationships without forgiveness. Do I need to say that again? There are no enduring relationships without forgiveness. So can you take an honest assessment this morning? Why is it that 
as I look back at my life, there's so many broken relationships. You at least have to ask the question, am I part of the problem because I am unforgiving, I am bitter, I am self-righteous, I keep score, I keep a record of wrong. We know 1 Corinthians 13. Guess what love does? No records, no records, no tallying, no scorekeeping. What if the reason for the aftermath and the blow-ups and the conflict and the unresolved relationships, whether that's marriages to parenting and kids, whether that's with coworkers, extended family, maybe, just maybe, we have to be honest and say, I'm at the center of that. I, I'm in the middle of that. It hasn't always been their fault. I chose to run away. I chose to reject them. I chose self-preservation to run and hide and protect myself. I told myself at some point, I will forgive this much, but no more. And if we're going to be a united church, the satanic ruminations of revenge and getting even and returning evil for evil and keeping score and rehearsing all of the wrongs and they did and they did and they did. Satan's winning. And what if as of today you'd say, no more, no more. I will forgive without limit. I will forgive. Because if we're going to be a church that forgives without limit, it starts with me. I got to be the one to break the chains. I got to be the one to put an end to it. Even if they never forgive, I'm going to choose it. I'm going to forbear. I am going to be patient. I'm going to endure. And here's the, the final ingredient, number five, in verse three, or really verse two carrying over. We, we see this love, right? Bearing with one another, and really the love could be connected to either side. With love, I'm eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If we're talking love, unity, peace, we could just summarize it, right? Verse 3, love, love. Yeah, best for last. If there is no love, there is no unity. If there is no caring in such a way that we long to be at peace with people instead of ignoring them and rejecting them, if this is at the heart, we can maintain unity as a church. Did you notice something in the passage? It says maintain the unity. Do you know why that's there? Right? Think for a second. Okay. Because unity is not something that we cultivate and create and start. When God adds a born-again, spirit-filled believer to the church, do you know what He's already doing in them? He's filling them with love and sending them in to be an object of unity. It's our job to maintain what God already starts. Are you tracking with me? I don't need to say, there's no unity here. I need to try hard to, to build it. The Spirit of God is fired up and intentional about cultivating unity. But it's up to us to say, I'm going to fan the flames of that. I'm going to keep it going. I'm going to maintain what God is already doing in His church. God's default in His church is to pour out a heart and a spirit of unity. We're the ones that throw a bucket of cold water on the fire. We're the ones that keep putting it out instead of God 
Let's do this together. Let's maintain this love. Can we clarify the, the love subject? Does love always keep its mouth shut? Does welcoming without judgment and forgiving without limit, does that always end up in saying, we'll just overlook everything? We get pretty excited and we're going to get there later in this chapter. Do you, do you know what's coming up next? Speaking the truth in love. That's how we build each other up. That's how we experience unity. When we keep our mouths closed because we might offend and we might hurt feelings and people might get upset, we are actually hoarding love because to love is to apply the truth carefully, wisely, and gently, but to speak it. If we are believing lies, we need somebody to open their mouths and say, this is what's true. This is what needs to change. This is love. Because I love you, I cannot affirm your behavior or your attitudes or your lifestyles. Because I love you, I cannot affirm that. And it doesn't mean I'm against you and I hate you. It means I love you enough to speak the truth and invite you to something more, something better. That's love. If we believe in unapologetic preaching, and we do, somebody say, and we do, unapologetic preaching is not harsh, just saying. We don't do the just saying preaching. Well, I know you're going to get upset, but I'm just saying. You know, I'm just saying. Unapologetic preaching mandates that we have a heart that welcomes without judgment and that forgives without limit. And here's what we would say lastly, that loves without condition. If we get these right, unapologetic preaching, proclamation, truth speaking is able to land differently when our hearts are in a different place. We are for people, not against them. Even if our words, carefully crafted, sting a little bit, it's love with this kind of heart. So as we land the plane, somebody say land the plane. As the worship team comes up, I want us to think about this. If there's no welcoming, there's no unity. If there's no forgiveness, there's no unity. If there's no love, there's no unity. We got to get this right. Church, are you with me? Are you with me? It takes each one of us, it takes each one of us uniquely and individually to be able to live worthy of this calling. In case you didn't hear at the beginning, we will conclude with this. You are called. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called. There's a calling on your life. If you have not yet surrendered to Jesus, if He's not the King of your life, if you are not obedient to a new King, a new Master, Jesus, then God is inviting you to this new calling. He's saying, come, experience this supernatural calling on your life that changes everything. For those of us that know Jesus, we are so prone to live in a way that is not worthy. Not worthy of the calling. I don't know when the last time that you've heard criticism of the church or Christianity. Has it been a couple hours? Probably. Have you checked any, any news lately? We're living in a world of, can you believe that they call themselves Christians and the church failed again? Could, could we have an honest conversation just as we finish up? Do you believe that there is a lot of warranted 
activity and behavior from the church that the world should be utterly perplexed. The church did that? Christians are doing that? They're not wrong. There's a lot of ammunition. And it's when church forgets this. There is a calling on our lives. When we forget the calling and the living worthy of this awesome call, we have a tendency to walk in a way that looks just like the old way. To wander off. And I want to leave you with this. You have those three. I will welcome without judgment. I will forgive without limit. I will love without condition. There's some questions that you can unpack this week on your own time. Would you make me such a happy pastor and actually use it? Okay. A lot of, a lot of sweat and, and time went into allowing you to, to have that. All right. Putting that together. Would you spend your week asking those questions? Am I like that? Am I resolved to live that way? But I want to be so helpful as we land the plane. I want these three questions to be in your mind. Let's assess. Okay. Why aren't you walking worthy? Could it be one of these three? And I want the the song that we're about to sing to be an invitation for you to be able to get really, really honest, to come forward. We're going to have some of our prayer warriors come up. If you need somebody to pray with you and for you, if you just need some time alone and you need to find a spot somewhere around the room, I want you to get specific in your in your conversation with God. And it's this, God, am I not walking worthy because I'm distracted? And I've allowed so much of life circumstances to distract me. Am I not walking worthy because I've been wounded and I refuse to heal? I've been wounded, I've been hurt, and I've told myself, not going to get hurt again. Not going to let anybody do that again. And you have actually blocked grace flowing to your life. You are part of the division instead of part of the unity. Because wounded people wound people. Hurting people hurt people. The greater the hurt, the greater the probability that you are hurting other people unless you heal. So what if you're not distracted, but you're, you're wounded? And maybe it's this. I've been doing this Jesus thing for a long time, and I'm just tired. I've been doing the church thing for a long time, and I'm just exhausted. I've been ministering in different ways, and I'm just kind of done. What if today you could say, the race isn't over yet. If I need to rest, I will rest in Jesus' name and His power and I will return stronger. But I'm not down and out. If I'm exhausted, I need strong friendships. I need spiritual friendships that people can lift me up. They can carry me for a season. They can help speak life into me. So are you distracted? Are you wounded? Are you just tired? In the next few minutes, as we worship, come forward, kneel down, Find a spot, whatever, but get specific and say, God, that's where I'm at. That's me. God, find me in that place and restore me, heal me, encourage me, build me up. Can we do that? Can we get honest before God, do business with God over these next few minutes? Let's do that. Let's do that together.